Father, thank you for your love and thank you that we get to come as a people today who have experienced your love. And if there's those of us in this room who feel like your love and your goodness is so far away, Father, bring it close. Your word tells us that you showed your love for us by sending Jesus to die for us and that you pour your love into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. So, Father, as we open your word, as we worship you in spirit and in truth, Father, let that be true. Pour your love into our hearts so that we can build our life on it. And it's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good to see everybody this morning. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Thank you so much. My children reminded me about every 30 minutes between 2 and 5 a.m. that I'm a father. So we'll see how, we'll see how this morning goes. Um, if I just start like staring off into the distance, somebody just snap at me or wake me up and, and uh, we'll keep going. But um, good to see everybody. We, we're going to keep on trucking through Ecclesiastes. So if you have your Bible or you have your phone or tablet or whatever, um, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be, last week we just went through like six verses. This week we're going through what kind of totals up to be a little over a chapter. Okay, so buckle up. Glad you came on Father's Day. We're just going to go and eat lunch here. We'll be here for a few hours uh, going through like 30-something verses. But um, uh, as we get into it today, I just kind of wanted, I was thinking about on the way, um, has anybody ever taken a fall and it be really embarrassing? Can you think of that time? Maybe you were like, like, like in gym class or you were like walking on stage for something or, or like walking up like at church on a Sunday morning and you fall on your way to preach or anything. Anybody, anybody ever have an embarrassing fall that you can remember? Okay, anybody have a fall that you can remember? Uh, for some of us younger in the room, maybe it's a little easier to remember. Uh, but any, those of us who are adults, do you guys remember when you were a kid and you took a hard fall, but it was because you, had, you were like standing on something that you should have been standing on? Anybody, anybody, can anybody remember that? I remember when I was a kid, so I, 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 the first time I had to get stitches, I got a little scar right here because I had some friends over. And uh, remember the 90s when like Pilates and aerobics were such a big thing and there were those like step classes you would do. You'd get the VHS tape and you'd buy the little things and you'd just like step up and down on something over and over. Anybody? Anybody that ring a bell? My mom had one of those and it was like a, a foam step block. Okay, so it's like that large. And uh, I remember turning it on its side and we had it on a blanket, me and some friends, and we were playing like rodeo. So we were pretending to ride it like a bull and, and my friends had the edges of the blanket and were shaking it. So you're trying to stay on it and I fell and hit my head on a chair and all my friends had to go home because I had to go get stitches at the hospital. Uh, and, and I bring that up because there, it's just so, you know, it's, it's typically in hindsight, it's so, it's so like, we look back and we're like, man, that was just like, that was just kind of stupid. That was silly. Like, what was I thinking? You know, and, and because when we don't have that right kind of stability, you look back and you're like, of course I fell. You know what I'm saying? Like, of course I did that. Of course, sitting on a foam step up aerobics workout with like a Christian VHS lady, turning that sideways, sitting on it, and shaking a blanket while I'm on it. It's just not a good idea, right? And what we're looking at today, it, it feels kind of like three different kind of mini sermons in one that the preacher, the, the author of Ecclesiastes, gives us. And kind of the common theme that he gives is a compare and contrast of stability versus instability. 
And so, so what, what we're going to be looking at are kind of three different things uh, that, that kind of show us what a life built on something stable versus a life built on something instable looks like. Uh, we're going to look at that today, and, and what I hope to do is, is just for us as the church, okay, in, in, in the New Testament, Paul writes that, that the church is supposed to be like a buttress of truth, where we're built on truth. So what that means for us as we gather on Sunday mornings, it's a chance for us to come together and all look at each other and say, hey, whatever you felt like you were told through the week or whatever, you're not crazy for believing what you believe, right? Like this does make sense. And so what I'm hoping to do today is kind of give us and, and remind us as we go out of, of what we believe and what we build our life on, uh, the truth that Jesus gives us, we're not crazy for believing it. And it actually does lead to a life of stability, Okay, so does anybody feel like they could use a little stability in their life today? Well, good. Let, let, let's, let's get into it. We're going to pick up in chapter 4, verses 9 through 16 first, and then we're going to go all the way through halfway through chapter 5. Okay, so starting in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, I'm going to read these first uh, few verses for us, and then we'll talk about the first one. Uh, the preacher, the, the author of Ecclesiastes says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Verse 13, better a poor but wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. And I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, which is the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This, too, is meaningless and a chasing after wind. So here's the first thing. Instability happens when we live a life in singularity. And see, instability and singularity happens when we believe the lie, ultimately, that I am what other people think of me. I am what others think of me. Because what that does is when we base our identity on what other people think of us, and we allow external ideas and, and, and opinions, and we care more about what other p- people think than, than what we know to be true, what we end up doing is keeping everybody at an arm's length. See, what we're looking at here in these verses is, is someone who's lost their identity where they came from. Think it talks about the, the youth who came, and, and he knew where he came from. But then whenever he becomes a king, whenever he succeeds the king, he has all of these people start following him. right? Because when you're in prison, whenever he says he, he may have come from prison to the kingship, he may have been born in poverty, those aren't really popular people. right? Hard to gain a following with that, with that kind of label. But as he becomes the king, people start following, and he says that's meaningless, and that's toil. It's someone who's forgotten their identity because of what other people have told them. And that's where that instability, that, that meaningless, that word, that Hebrew word hebel that we keep talking about comes from. It's, it's an identity that comes off basing off popularity and celebrity. See, because uh, verses 13 and 14 shows us what happens to the old king who's lived off of that identity for so long, 
Right, verse 13 and 14, the king better is a, a poor and wise youth than a foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. It's like the, the old CEO that won't retire when the company starts to decline. Or it's like Michael Jordan, like arguably, right, we can get into it later at a, at a later time over coffee, but arguably the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan, like one of the worst team owners of all time, Right? It's like just known like the Hornets are just never going to be good while he's, while he's calling the shots. For, like, for the dozen of us in the, team, in the building who like sports analogies, you got that one. For everybody else, look it up. Michael, Michael Jordan, Google him. Uh, see, Michael, Michael Jordan, he made such a name for himself and he lived off of that celebrity for so long, right, that, that now he doesn't think he needs advice to learn what it means to make a good team. See, the, the way that we overcome this, though, the, the instability of singularity, the instability of building an identity based off of what other people say about you and to you, the way we overcome that is to be fully known, right? Because we see from verses 9 through 12, stability is found in community. Look at that, two are better than one. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. If two lie down together, they'll keep warm. How can one keep warm? And although one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not easily broken. See, what those verses show us is that the reality of being known personally, deeply by people, is better than being known as someone. Being known by someone and being known as someone are two different things, right? People who are truly known and not living by that false self because if you're living by I am what others say about me, then you portray to I will be what you say about me. But whenever we take off the false self and we're truly known by other people, it helps because when something is wrong, it's very obvious, right? I mean, the, he said, he said, it's a pity if anyone falls and has no one to help them up. It's a, it's a really dangerous game to play if you're only ever known by other people superficially and that the people around you can't tell if something's wrong or not, right? That's why growth groups are so important here. That's why the author of Hebrews says, hey, be careful lest anyone among you has an unbelieving heart and falls away, right? In Galatians, it, Paul's talking and he says, it, he says, if anyone is in sin, you who are spiritual should pick them back up, Right? Community is important, but it's not like the, the like, hey, how was your day? It's like the, hey, what, what's, the, what's the, the anxiety that's keeping you awake at night? What's the fears that's driving you to make bad decisions? That's what it, those are the kind of questions that, that allows you to be really known. And that's why most small groups never get past that. A lot of times they use what's called spiritual bypassing, where you label something with a spiritual phrase so that you don't have to talk about what's actually wrong. So a lot of people would rather have Bible study than an accountability group. Because if you can talk about the Bible, you don't have to talk about you that much. You can just deal with it later. But, it, but, but being actually really known is what it looks like when, when someone is able to tell that you've fallen down, even though the, the, the self you're projecting looks like it's still standing strong. And it's, it's, I mean, it's so important. Like, we have to get community right. I love what Ruth Haley Barton says about it. She says, loving each other well takes time and attention, 
But if we fail at that, we have failed at the one thing that Jesus wants most from us and for us. Right? What did Jesus say in John 13? He said, by the what that you have, they will know you're my disciples. Anybody remember? Trivia, you get a Jesus point if you answer it. By the what that you have. By the knowledge that you have. By the love that you have for one another. By the love that you have for one another. That's real community where you're known by people. It's not a face value superficiality, right? And look, I love what she says. She says that it takes time and attention. Those are two things in our culture right now that are like at an all-time deficit, right? Uh, we went through the, the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, a year ago, uh, last fall in our groups. And he did a bunch of, collecting a bunch of research and data, and, and he brought to our attention that for the first time in human history, humans have a smaller attention span than a goldfish, right? Time and attention are two things that we think we don't have or we build a life to where we don't have it anymore, right? We don't have those things, but that's what it takes to be known. Think about that in any relationship we know this to be true, right? Time and attention, two things that it takes to be true. Like how many of us are still in like really good contact with our high school best friends, Right, and that's not a that's not a slam. That's just react like life happens. But the, you may have one or two that you are in close contact with, and it's because what are two things that you've put into that relationship? Time and attention, right? Like a lot of people use some of these metaphors in verses nine through twelve about marriage, especially the like cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Do you know what it takes to to weave a rope or a cord? Have you ever seen anybody make a rope? It's crazy. You know the two things it takes? Time and attention, right? Like Rome didn't fall in a day. And typically like relationships, whether that's marriage or that's friendship or that's church relationships, that, that's your growth group that you're in, they're only going to get stronger if you give them time and attention. And that's why those two words I've kind of focused on from that, that quote from from Ruth Haley Barton is because time and attention means that there's like painstaking details that have to go into the whole thing. And that's exactly what God did for us, right? I mean, he put himself into human time and gave attention by sending Jesus. That's what the incarnation is all about. Like God, the word becoming flesh means that God took the time and attention to become like us so that he could, so that we could know him that much more. John Stott, I love the way he puts it, he says, the Christian faith is based on the assertion that there was once a time where God chose to speak and to clothe himself with a body that would be seen and touched. That's time and attention for us. And that's why we, as people, as the people of God, as people who, who come to know Jesus, like we're called to be incarnational people, where we don't live a life based on an identity of what other people say about us, but we live a life based on, on people that are really known, that they're heard, they're seen, they're touched, healed, helped, and also hear and see others just like Jesus did, right? It's because of the love of Jesus that we're able to love one another. Just as I have loved you, I want you to love one another, he said. And, and by the love you have one another is that people will know 
that you're my disciples. And see, the, the love that he showed us is the way that we're able to be truly known by him and to be truly known by other people. And just a, this is just a pastoral side note this morning, and I was praying for us this morning. Uh, if the people who are influencing us the most in the way that we think and live and make important decisions are people that we only know through a screen, um, that's called the influence of celebrity, which is social power without personal investment. So, so maybe try to replace that with a mentor or a counselor, a person that you can talk to in person about the things that you feel most passionate or like angst about in life. Okay, that was just a pastoral side note. Um, that's a different sermon. Okay, so that's the first instability. Stability. Instability comes through a life of singularity, but stability comes through real community, okay? So here's the second one. Let's read verses uh, one through seven of chapter five. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your, with your mouth and do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. See, a dream comes when there are many cares and, and many words mark the speech of a fool. And when you make a vow to God, don't delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools, so fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. So do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. I love it. The preacher just keeping it nice and light here on Father's Day for us. Welcome to church. Uh, the second compare and contrast of stability and instability is seen uh, in those seven verses. And so up to this point, the preacher's covered a lot of ground in Ecclesiastes, right? Like he's talked about the love of money. He's talked about, you know, the different things that we worship being, you know, pleasure, things, people, work, all those things. And at this point, he kind of switches gears and he talks about the worship of God. Okay. And, and, and he gives just like some solemn warnings here about worshiping, but it's not because of God, right? Like God's not the problem. Uh, the, the problem is the way that we come to worship God. He's talking about the, the fickle nature that we have. From the words that we use in worship uh, to the promises we make to God to the way that we try to cover ourselves from falling short, our instability in our words come from our character. See, so often, so often we play the blame game in the words that we say but, but the, 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 our character is what Jesus hits on where he says, out of the abundance of the heart, being that overall operating system of the human, out of the abundance of that, our mouth speaks. Right? James picks up on that too and he, and he talks about like, don't let your mouth lead you into sin. He talks about your words, your tongue being a fire. That's one thing that we've, like I've kind of borrowed in our household, which we're talking to our our girls right now is, is hey, did you, the, the words that you're saying, like, were you hoping that they would heal or hurt? Because our words are fire. So when you said that, were you hoping that they would heal or that they would hurt? And like, say that to our, it's easy to say that to our five-year-old, I don't like it whenever they ask me that, <laughs> you know? I don't like that. Because we don't like to be held accountable for the, the words we say or the things that we do. 
right? That's why he says, like, hey, don't go to the messenger and say, hey, my vow was a mistake. Don't go to the person who heard you say what you said and say that you messed up, right? Because we don't want to be held. We just want to say, hey, I didn't mean to say it. No big deal. But the reality is that our words are really important. The words that we say are very important because it shows us how shallow the depths of our heart are. A hasty heart utters rash words, right? Whether you call them like, like, like what's the word that comes whenever you're scared or you stub your toe, what we call panic words in our house, right? What are those hasty words that come up when you're caught off guard? What are those hasty words that come up? Because Proverbs says in relation to this here is that where words are plentiful, there is no lack of sin. And because he takes it a step further like than, than James does here, the preacher does, he's talking about our words to God and they lead us to sin. But here, here's, a, here's a bit of hope. I love it. it says, much dreaming and many words are meaningless, which if you're wondering what that means, whenever you catch yourself talking more than you're thinking, and you catch yourself talking about the true ambitions of your heart, you start dreaming about a life you don't have. And you refuse to embrace the reality that God's given you, the limits God's put in your life as a blessing, and you try to go for more. Right? But look what he says in verse 7. He says, therefore, fear God. See, fearing God is looking at God with a reverence and almost using God, not using God, not almost using God, using God as a reality grid for the life that we find ourselves in. So instability in our words come from our character, but stability we find in God's character. Because God doesn't change. The author of Hebrews says that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. See, God has made himself known to us, and because of that, we can be formed into his likeness. Right? That's, that's what his Holy Spirit was given to us for. That's what this thing, church, like I said, we show up and we say, hey, you're not crazy for believing what you believe. Right? You're, not, you're not crazy for trying to live the life you've been called to live because we together are being formed into the image of Christ. Paul wrote to the Corinthians about the reality that we've been given a chance for a new start in this body. Right? Our bodies, when we place our faith in Jesus, our bodies don't change. We know that's true. We still live in, in a broken world where hurt and pain and decay exist, but we've been given a chance to, to live in a new life and be transformed from the inside out. And I love the way it's, it's like kind of hard definitely to, to modern ears to hear stuff like this, but, but I love the way he talks about, hey, we've been given a new chance. So in 1 Corinthians, he's, Paul's like, hey, you've been given a new chance in the body. And he's talking about the new and the hope and the future. But, it, but then he, he, he kind of, at the beginning of that, of chapter 5, reminds us that God's judgment is real. Like the judgment of God, like, like our actions and works being exposed before God and then being judged based on his goodness and the reality of the good world that he created for us to live in. Like, it's real. And I love that as he kind of goes, his flow of logic, he goes on and he says that because of that, we should live even more deeply into the reality that God is making us his temple, making us the place where his holiness and presence dwells and emanates into the culture around us, right? And then he goes on into verse 7, I, I, um, and he says, since we have these promises, since God is making us his temple, 
where, where we are to, to take his presence and his power, his activity and his character into the world around us. He says, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Like I can't help but wonder if, if Paul had been reflecting on Ecclesiastes as he's writing to the Corinthian church. And holiness, what it is, is that it's us living into the life the, the life that he modeled for us in Jesus and is given to us in the Holy Spirit. The, the idea of, of holiness is the idea of being set apart, that it's something holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely different from the broken creation that's around us. And we've been able to, to let that be a reality because he's done. And that's why like we're doing the practicing the way stuff on Wednesday nights over the summer that's why we talk so much about spiritual disciplines. It's because those, the rhythms, the practices, the habits of Jesus that, that lives into the life of God that we see, it, it's, it's, it's why they're so important because they're a means to an end, which is being transformed into the character and person of Christ. As we replace the habits and the rhythms that the world gives us with the habits and the rhythms that Jesus gives us, we get to live the life that, that Jesus set for us. And, and let me just say, uh, recently there's been a bunch of statistics that's come out that's kind of done a, a meta study over the last three years. And did you know that, uh, that streaming content, okay, from screens on a phone that lasts less than one minute, okay, so that's all, that's, you know, social media, TikTok, Instagram, and stuff like that, it outnumbers, the, the number of minutes of content streamed outnumbers on those um, from anything uh, streamed on a TV screen, like four to one. So think about that. Think, like, we think like Netflix and stuff like that's the, the enemy, but like the, re- not the enemy, but like the thing that's taking, the enemy of our time and attention, let me say that, not our enemy. The, the, the enemy of our time and attention, I'm not saying it's in, I watch, like I'm finished up season five of Better Call Saul, and it's so good. It's just good art, but we, we, like, we think, we like look and we're like, oh, we got to get rid of, you know, streaming TV stuff. But the reality is, like, our phones are the biggest enemy of our time and attention. And, like, just, just basic, once again, this is what we do this. It seems like we do this every, like, six months or so. Just a refresher. Look up, if you don't know how to, look up how to look at your screen time on your phone. And just look at where your time and attention is going. Like, just, just look for yourself and weigh it out. Like if we're looking into build into the stability of God's character built into our own inner life versus the things that are forming us by algorithms and multi-billion dollar companies, like just, just compare and contrast for yourself and see what's taking up your time and attention. Okay, I didn't mean to go into that. Dallas Willard says it like this. Dallas will get us back on track. He says, the vitality and power of Christianity is lost when we fail to integrate our bodies into practices by intelligent, conscious choice and steadfast intent. It's with our bodies that we receive the new life that comes as we enter his kingdom. So maybe you're wondering, you're like, okay, how does God's character, what does that have to do with stability in my life? Let me just go back to the words. Let me remind us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The things that we have taught ourselves to love, the things that we have taught to feed our souls on are the things that's gonna come out of our mouths. 
when we do our part in what, call, what Paul says in Colossians about putting off the old self and putting on the new self, which is the character of Jesus, then we get to experience that life marked by God's character being formed in us. I love the way Psalm 16, verses nine, 7 through 9 says, it says, I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. All right, so, so who gives me the things I need to make wise decisions. It says, in the night also my heart instructs me. So as we receive counsel from the Lord in the night, our hearts instruct us. I keep the Lord. This is intentional language. I keep the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices and my body also rests secure. See, it's when we intentionally place the things, the word, the character, God's spirit in our lives consistently, keeping the Lord always before us as he gives us counsel, then our heart can instruct us. And that's how his character comes to take over as we put off the old self, put on the new self. When we live into the life of Jesus, our heart works with him to give us good instruction. See, that's stability in life. That's how we learn that instability in our character is replaced by the stability of God's character. And so here's the third uh, portrait of kind of comparing and contrasting, picking up in verse 8 of chapter 5. It says, If you see the poor oppressed in a district, and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are higher ones still. The increase from the land is taken by all the king himself profits from the fields. That's essentially the, the preacher saying, hey, don't be surprised because left to our own devices, this is the best humans come up with, right? So then verse 10, he says, whoever loves money never has enough, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume, consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. So now we come to the very end. And in nearly every line of this section, the preacher shows us one common reality, whether it's from power, whether it's from money. Instability is found in having too much. Like just having too much. It's like a hard thing for us to swallow, but the reality is like, look, all throughout Scripture, when we have too much, we start to worship it because we're afraid of going back to only having enough or not having enough. When we have too much, we begin to worship the, like, the, the structures of safety and the security nets that we've built around us, and we, we're so focused on not losing those that it becomes hard to trust God, and so we have to do the things that he says. We end up loving money without even meaning to. From those who have power and oppress others to get from the king who just receives because of his title and authority to the lovers of wealth and never get enough, it's all described as meaningless. And, it's worth, and like just as a side note, it's kind of worth noting the irony of how much money and effort we spend into reversing the damage from living in a culture that has too much, right? Like how much money are spent on subscriptions to like get healthy because we have so much money, we've gotten ourselves unhealthy. Isn't it ironic when you think about it? Like gym memberships, like all that kind of stuff. 
diet regiments programs. They cancel out, like we're trying to cancel out what we've done to ourselves because of our ease uh, in a society. And I'm not like talking about genetic health concerns. It's just interesting to kind of step back and look at that, I think. And I think the preacher kind of has his thumb on something here. But here's where I want us to think on this, okay? Derek, Derek Kidner in his commentary in Ecclesiastes, I love the way that he puts uh, these verses uh, about addiction to money and power and comfort. He says, man with eternity in his heart. We read that earlier in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity in man's heart. Man, humans, with eternity in his heart needs better nourishment than this. Like the, thing, like the things that, that we see in verses 8 through 12, the power money, having everything we want plus more, we actually need better nourishment than that because it's our souls that are on the line. The pictures found in these verses are all people who have so much that they no longer know how to find satisfaction in life. All except there's one person, one picture here, right? The one person who earns for the work that they put in. See, we we were made to work. It was part of our design. Part of the Garden of Eden, the pictures of the fruit trees, is that there was always going to be enough based on the blessing that God gave us. But, But when we don't accept that and we seek to find ways of fulfillment somewhere else, we end up doing what Paul says where he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then what we do is we try to find glory for ourselves in other things. And those are counterfeit glory. Because we were made to be in and reflect the glory of God that comes straight from him. See the picture here where it says that the, the person who says the sleep of a laborer is sweet. Whether they eat little or much, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they have because stability is satisfaction in what God has given me. If instability comes from just having too much, then stability comes from satisfaction and having enough. That's why Jesus taught us to pray. We talked about it this past Wednesday night at the Practice in the Wake study. Jesus taught us, give us today our daily bread. And that's enough. And like if Jesus taught us to ask God for that, then, then, then that should be enough. But, but what's really the question that, that we ask ourselves coming out of this is, is what's nourishing my soul? Like, Think about your life. Like if, you, like if you look at all the content, okay, all of the things that, that, that kind of that fuel your worry, your anxiety, your angst, the things that you think about the most, if you kind of took inventory of those things and thought about them as like a soul nutrition label, you know, that's on the back of food, you know, you look at the nutrition label. If you looked at the things that we, that we feed our souls with, from the content we take in to the people we hang out with, the relationships we, we, we work on, and you looked at the nutrition daily value label, like how would, that, how would that weigh out? Like what are you feeding your soul with? Right? Like, like what's the diet of community that you're living in? Like the people who have the loudest voice and, and can weigh in the most on important things in your life. Like, like, is that a healthy diet for you? Maybe you're on like a strict individuality diet where you're like, I don't want anybody to tell me anything. This is my one life I get to live and I'm going to do whatever I want with it. What's the nutrition value on that for your soul? Like, like, is keeping everyone at arm's length so you're not fully known working well for you? How about the practices and the rhythms of your life? 
Like, what's the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? Like, what's the first thing you do, and what's the last thing you do before you go to bed or get out of bed? And how's that working for your soul? How's that feeding your soul? Like, what kind of nutritional soul content are we really getting from, like, the TikTok? The TikTok. Man, I thought I was a millennial. Are we getting from TikTok or the news or our televisions, right? I mean, Jesus said, like, like what good is it if you gain the whole world? Like, what good is it if you feed your soul with whatever you want, but then you lose it? Meaning you're, you lose the ability to relate to the people around you and to God himself. Because Jesus reminds us in Deuteronomy, right? Whenever he was tempted by Satan, he said, man cannot live on bread alone, the things of earth, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. See, it's the power of his word, his, his changing and creating agent for our lives that reveal his character to us all throughout the scriptures, culminating in Jesus that he's, he's created to sustain this world that we can know and love, and that's the word that we have to live off of. So let, we're just gonna end with some action steps here, thinking about the words of the preacher. Take inventory this week. Like, 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 let's actually do it. I did it this week. I got an Evernote thing. Like, think of the things this week that your body wants, whether it's by, like, thinking about it, daydreaming about it, or, like, physically. Like, for me, one thing that hit me really hard is, like, when everyone in my house falls asleep by 8.30, I just want a snack. Like, when I get, like, when I'm by myself, I just want graham crackers and peanut butter dipped in almond milk for, like, hours. That's all I want to do. I know that's a silly thing, but like, why can't I just be okay with being by myself? You know? Like, like what are those things that your body tries to get when you're not actively involved or actively engaged in something? Or, what are the things that you're actively engaged in every day, the rhythms, the habits, whatever, the addictions of your life, and just take, and just ask yourself the question, what nutritional value is this adding? Like, what's it doing for me? Like, what are the things that you're seeking to nourish your soul with? And then here's just two kind of action steps for us as a people to work on doing. I've, I can't remember where I heard this first one. It's catchy. Um, but, but the first one that, that let's try this week is Scripture before screens. Scripture before screens. So let's try that this week. When you wake up in the morning, when you wake up in the morning, do not look at a screen until you have read something in the Bible. So I'm talking like a, a paper Bible, okay? Because even if you open your, open your phone or you click it to see the, the verse of the day, you're going to start thinking about emails. You're going to start thinking about notifications. You're going to start thinking about how many views you got on that story you put up last night. I'm telling you, no screens until you've opened the Bible and read something. Let's try that. If you don't know where to start, Gospel of John's a great place to start. The Sermon on the Mount's a great place to start. Matthew 5 through 7. The Psalms are a great place to start. Right, Jesus said at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, at the end of Matthew 7, and he says that, that anyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise person who built their house on a rock, and when the storm came, it wasn't shaken. Stability. But he said the person who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like the person who builds their house on the sand, and when the storm came, it fell. That's instability. If we're looking at a life of stability, try screens before, scripture before screens. And then here, here's going back to the beginning of chapter five. He said, uh, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen 
rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So here's the second thing I'm going to invite us to do. Three times this week, get alone, put everything away, find an old school, somehow get an old school timer, whether that's a watch or like a, like a cooking timer, something like that. Get away from any distractions, get alone, set a timer for two minutes, and just ask God, what are you trying to tell me today? So that's six minutes this week, okay? For six minutes total, three different times, two minutes apiece, go near to listen. Like it said in verse one, go near to listen. Okay, whatever time that is. Just, just make two minutes three times this week. So those are two action steps. Scripture before screens and getting alone with God. Go near to listen. Let me pray for us and then we're gonna close worshiping. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to come as a people and be reminded of your goodness, of your truth. Jesus, thank you that, that we can be a people who are fully known, that we can be a people who have a life marked in stability in, in, an, in, a, in a chaotic world, uh, not just because we have your word, the scriptures, but, but Jesus, we have you, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us so that you could be the light to all people. So Jesus, as this week we seek to live in your light because of the reality that we know that, that you died for our sins, that you rose from the grave making new life possible here on earth and then forever with you. Jesus, meet us in those times as we seek to become people of the word who are opening up the Bible to hear from you before we hear from any other voices and as we seek to go near to hear from you as we set timers, as we set appointment times on our phone to meet with you. Jesus, meet with us. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.